You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or to check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello, and welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. And I am Fatih Chelyshev. Today we're speaking with Michael Polchinski, a PhD student in Georgetown University's Department of History, who's going to be talking about the career and travels of Sefer Muratovich, a 17th century Armenian merchant. Michael, thanks for coming back on the podcast. My pleasure, Chris. So why don't you give us a little background on this figure, Sefer Muratovich, his life and what kind of guy he is. Sure. Uh, Sefer Muratovich was born in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, we think he was born in the North Anatolian village of Karahisar. Um, and he was born in the late 16th century and... As a young man, he traveled um, first north to Kaffa, to the uh, Crimean Khanate, and then over the Via Tatarica, which is a famous trade route, into the heart of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And when he arrived there, he ended up uh, joining and assimilating uh, very easily into the native Armenian population, um, which had uh, a number of centers, but one of them, uh, one of the primary centers, was the city of Lvov. This group of Armenians, had been there uh, at least as early as the mid-14th century, and certainly there were Armenians in, in the region before then as well. Uh, they were very well established. They had their own prelate, uh, cathedral, churches, um, schools, law codes, hospitals, monasteries, things like this. Um, so there, there were quite a few Armenians actually living there, and most of them were involved in trade. And because this particular uh, group of Armenians actually spoke a Kipchak Turkish dialect as their first language and maintained Armenian uh, primarily for um, religious purposes. They did a lot of trade with the Ottoman Empire, the Crimean Khanate, and eventually uh, the Safavid uh, Persia as well. So could you give us a little more background on these different parties, Safavid Persia, the Ottoman Empire in this time, the Crimean Khanate, etc.? During this period, uh, right, right before uh, 1600, uh, the post-Lithuanian Commonwealth and the Ottoman Empire had been involved in some conflict over dominion in Moldavia, particularly with the rebellion of the Ottoman vassal Mikhail uh, Vitriazul. Eventually, they settled on a, a system of sort of light co-dominium there when uh, Poland put their own ruler on the Moldavian throne and the Ottomans sort of just agreed to it. After that, of course, the Ottomans had much more power in, in that region. But Right around 1600, which is the period that concerns us here, these two states were at peace. However, the Safavids and the Ottomans had been uh, involved in some pretty heavy conflict uh, around this time as well, and the Ottomans had uh, just taken a great deal of territory from the Safavids, although they too were at, at peace right at the moment that we're going to begin our story. So this is right at the turn of the 17th century? Yes, it is. It's really good to have such uh, depictions of uh, some personalities in history to have a really deep understanding of what's going on between states and cultures. Uh, that just remind me the uh, great work of uh, Natalia Davis, uh, The Return of Martunka, uh, uh, writing on a specific guy in a specific region, in a specific time period. But um, as a historian, I'd like to know the uh, sources that we uh, draw that detailed picture of a certain guy in that uh, very early period of history, how we can know. Absolutely. Uh, we have... Several sources that, that can be uh, consulted when, when trying to piece together 
this individual. The most important thing um, that we've identified that he actually was involved in is an unofficial embassy to Shah Abbas I in 1601 and 1602. And we have a copy of his relation that he wrote upon his return describing the events that occurred on his mission. Uh, unfortunately, the original is missing, as usually happens. Um, and we have two different 18th century reproductions of this original. Uh, these two documents are almost exactly the same. Uh, both of them are created by uh, members of the Catholic Church, a Jesuit, and, and another priest. Uh, and they're very interested in the history of various uh, Catholic orders in Persia. And there's, there's a very deep history here, which we won't go into right now, but that has something to do with why they chose to preserve this document, particularly because uh, Sefer has some interesting things to say about um, Shah Abbas and his relation to Christianity. Um, beyond that, we can also establish that he was indeed sent on um, a mission of trade during this uh, exact same journey uh, because we have his receipts that he gave to the king that talk about what items he bought um, and how much it cost him to transport these items, his route uh, on the return journey, so we know where he went to and, and things like that. And these can all be very well substantiated, and we know definitely that he existed, definitely he went on the trade mission. His non-official diplomatic mission is uh, up for a little bit more discussion, we could say, but it, it seems that this indeed did happen. So before we get more into the story, I just want to know, how rare is this document? Obviously, most people are familiar with works of Evliya Chelebi and these types of travel accounts, but how common is it to have a travel account or some sort of a primary source record of a 17th century Armenian living in Poland? Um, well, the Armenian community, uh, communities, I should say, in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, most of whom lived in what is present-day Ukraine in cities like Kamienic, Podolsky, and Lvov, had left a lot of records for us. Um, much of it from earlier periods are in this Crimean Kipchak dialect, although using Armenian uh, orthography, interestingly enough, mm -hmm. to, to record them. And there are, there are specialists, turcologists, that um, have made careers out of, out of these documents. So we know a great deal about them. Um, both in relation to their their uh, traditions of law, because oftentimes they were allowed to govern their own communities uh, within the Commonwealth, and their uh, trade dealings with one another and with many different places, particularly in the Black Sea region. As far as relations of this nature, diplomatic relation documents, uh, we there's also a very long tradition of this in the Commonwealth. Most, well, I should say many um, envoys upon their return would write down uh, an account of what they did, where they went, what they said. And these are very valuable documents, very interesting, although they have to be read very carefully because oftentimes these are reports directly to the king or to his council, and these guys really want to look you know, very good in front of it. So they'll say, I know I stood in front of the sultan and I told him what's what, and, and the sultan listened to me, and this is, you know, I'm such a great man. Um, maybe sometimes they did manage to have some victories, but uh, we don't know. You have, to, you have to look very carefully. Yeah, there may be a bit of embellishment. Indeed. But read alongside the other sources from the period, we can get some sense of what's really going on there. And that, that's what I was trying to do here with this study, indeed. Very interesting story. Um, if we like to uh, depict a picture of a certain personality in modern politics and diplomacy, uh, I think the first word which comes to our mind uh, for such a personality is kind of traitor. And I, I'm a bit curious about how we can describe that person uh, in, lived in 17th century using the modern term or uh, can we call it a, that change in positions and uh, identity is kind of the reflection of the spirit of Asia uh, that he lived. 
I think that Sefer is really an, an interesting figure because he he displays a lot of the of the fluidity that that really is um, occurring with people's identities, political identities especially, uh, because he is uh, Armenian, meaning he belongs to the Armenian Church. He speaks a Turkic dialect. He's born in Ottoman Anatolia, but he moves to the post-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which is also a very diverse um, region unto itself. It's also very interesting because once he gets there, he becomes involved in in a lawsuit against some other Armenians living in Lvov that he was working for. And at that exact moment, uh, two envoys arrive from the Ottoman Empire. He approaches the envoys and asks them to advocate for his behalf in the Polish court when they go there to do their, their normal business. And they do, because he is an Ottoman subject. He is a subject of the sultan. We assume this ends successfully. The, the king does draw up some, some documents supporting Sefer, thanks to the Ottoman envoys. But two years later, he is then sent as this sort of unofficial envoy to the Shah, who is the enemy of the sultan, nominally. I mean, there's a lot of uh, trouble between these two groups of people at that time. And, and now he's he seems to have appropriated a brand new identity, you could say. Although I would argue that he is not, and that in fact he is part of a very multinational, you could say, Armenian diaspora that's occurring all over the Black Sea region uh, and beyond. So for him to, to make these movements is not that unusual, first of all, and uh, to be successful, it, it, it's, it's very interesting because it speaks to the, the success that individuals like him can have in different political uh, and cultural contexts. Uh, we actually did a podcast a while back with Emra Safa Gurkhan, um, maybe one or two, about these uh, various kinds of go-betweens during the early modern era that, on one hand, are ambiguous or seem like traitors, but actually just generally maintain these flexible stances that reflect the fluidity of identity in the period, right? And maybe it is also possible to uh, contextualize it, not with modern terms, but... Um, within the uh, terminology of the period, and can, we can consider them as uh, entrepreneurs who like to have their uh, uh, living from that business. And as you were mentioning, uh, that's kind of family tradition for this guy to involve with spying for different uh, uh, states uh, in the period. Well, it's, it's possible that he was actually sent, um, th- that he may have been engaged as, as sort of a fact finder that may have then given some information to other Ottoman subjects. However, it, his uh, engagement in trade with uh, Safavid Persia is definitely a family business. When he gets there in his relation, if it's to be believed, uh, it says that he was greeted by the Grand Vizier of Abbas I, a man named Tahmasp, who says who is also of Armenian extraction, by the way, who says that he knows his brothers. He's never met Sefer before, but he trusts him implicitly because his brothers are good men. So it's it's clear that he was sent to Persia uh, by the king of Poland because he had familial connections there. If if maybe he had even been there himself before, we don't know. Uh, but de- but definitely his his family seems to have been there. Uh, again, illustrating sort of this multinational milieu that people like Sefer Muratovich are really operating in. It's also interesting to see that uh, various rulers not only seem to trust him, but are using him um, happily to, to do these things. So the, the king of Poland knew very well that he was a subject of the sultan, but he still chose to engage him as not only his personal merchant, but apparently a courier for a message of friendship to the Shah of Persia. And he didn't think twice about it. He just did it. So this is it is very interesting. So, Michael, why don't you tell us what the sort of the career of this liminal Armenian merchant figure, Sefer Muratovich, from the 17th century, can tell us, as Fatih alluded to, about 
you know, the times of the period and about a world embodied in the life of one man. It's uh, the best the best document related to his life is uh, to answer this question is definitely his relation, um, which, again, we're not exactly sure if it's entirely true. It's it's almost certainly um, just a uh, a redaction of the original document. And it may have been added to by these priests in the 18th century, as I said. Um, nevertheless, it, it gives us some very interesting uh, details that can be corroborated by, by other sources. It's a very important document when looking at the history of trade in this region because we know that there were trade relations between, for instance, Poland and the Safavids, which is actually very far away from between Warsaw and Isfahan. But we don't have many accounts that describe the journey the destinations that he uh, followed in between. Uh, we, we Through through Muratovich, we also know how much it cost to transport certain goods from one place to another. This is valuable information as well. And since he was a merchant of the king, we get a, a glimpse of what a European potentate would, would want from uh, Safavids. And we actually still have some of these items that he purchased. He went to... Uh, Kishan, which was a, a major entrepot of silk trade in this time. And when he got there, he uh, ordered a number of carpets to be made for uh, Sigismund III Vasa, who's from a Swedish dynasty, with the Polish coat of arms on it. So you have these beautiful carpets, which we still have today in a museum in Germany, uh, that are silk, Persian, gorgeous, gorgeous rugs. And in the middle, they have a very obviously European coat of arms of the state of Poland in them. Uh, interesting things like this. He also bought some uh, Damascene sabers, some bells, little bits and pieces like this. So you get an idea of what what sort of personal trade would have been going on. Yeah, can I ask, uh, how did he get from Poland to Persia? Did he go through the Ottoman Empire? Did he cross through Constantinople? What did he Black Sea? He did. He traveled first down uh, through Moldavia and to the Black Sea coast, and then he took ship from there to Trabzon. And it took him a great deal of time to get from uh, the coast of what is now Bulgaria to Trabzon. Um, and he complained about winds, you know, going in the wrong direction, things like this. So we have these uh, interesting little details. And when he got there, he ended up traveling over into um, the southern Caucasus. He may have visited a town in Georgia at this time period as well and ended up touching uh, upon some, some rather major cities that one may expect to see along this route. Uh, one of the more interesting descriptions he has, which is very short, unfortunately, is of the town called Julfa, uh, which was an Armenian town, which was involved in uh, silk trade, mainly between uh, the Caucasus, Muscovy, and we can assume Poland, uh, and also the Ottoman Empire as well. And he, he talks about how many Armenian houses were there and things like this, but it, it's just, you know, it's just a fact that he that he throws in. But this is very relevant. Why? Because... Well, it shows it shows just how... Uh, how important this Armenian connection specifically was for him because he's, he's visiting towns that are full of Armenian traders like him. Um, and it, it's actually a very interesting tidbit because he's he's there right in between the, the time period where the Ottoman Empire, uh, the Safavids, resumed conflict. And after this latest conflict, uh, Shah Abbas evacuates the entire, well, or at least a large portion of the Armenian population from Julfa and moves them to, I believe, Esfahan. Esfahan, where they still have a New, neighborhood of New Julfa, New Julfa think, to yeah. this day. So this is the namesake of New Julfa and Esfahan right before it's yeah. uh, evacuated. It's so there's a you know a Armenian from Lvov, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, showing up. It's at this moment. It's it's a very interesting 
It shows the dynamism and mobility in the in the early modern period. Absolutely. Yeah, this uh, would have, you know, a number of borders crossed today, and this journey would have been a, a bit more than yeah. in that period, perhaps. Maybe rather difficult for certain individuals. But for him, it was no problem. And when he gets to uh, the court of the Shah, as I mentioned before, he's, he's eventually greeted by um, the Grand Vizier, who is a... Uh, Armenian by birth, although we can assume that he was probably converted to Islam at some point in his life. And this man knows apparently of his family and introduces him to the Shah. Now, this is where I think the meat of the relation um, really begins, because the king or whoever read this may not have been terribly interested about what cities he went to or how many Armenians live in Julfa, but they definitely want to know what the Shah thinks of the king of Poland. And he gets there. The Shah asks him, why has your king, the king of Poland, uh, not sent a real envoy. You say you're, you're only a merchant and you're here to, to, to uh, express the king's friendship towards me, but you bear no letters or gifts. Why is this? And he says, well, why should the king of Poland send you letters and gifts when you've never sent him letters and gifts? And the Shah looks to another of his viziers and says, have I not sent letters and gifts to the king of Poland? And the vizier says, yes, you have. Now, this really brings in uh, another group of interesting people that are uh, sort of that are living in the, the court of the Shah at the time. And these are two brothers named uh, Shirley, Anthony and Robert Shirley. They're Englishmen that showed up uh, not long before Safar Muratovich, a few years before. And Anthony uh, very quickly became part of a Safavid embassy to many different courts in uh, the Christian world. And his brother, Robert, was left behind as sort of a show of good faith that Anthony would return, which, by the way, he never did. Uh, and Robert stays there for many years and, and really becomes, uh, I don't know if he's a very important part of the Shah's court, but definitely sort of a permanent resident uh, Englishman there. So the Shah asks Robert why his brother, Anthony, had not delivered the letter he was supposed to deliver to the Polish king. And he says, well, when he got to, Robert says, when my brother got to, to Moscow, uh, the Tsar, Boris Gudunov, imprisoned him for a period of six months. And before he let him out, he made him promise to not visit the Polish court uh, and instead sent him to Arkhangelsk. And they had to take a two-month Arctic voyage around all of Scandinavia and eventually landed in the Low Countries and continued on their trip. The, the mission was really uh, fraught with difficulties from the beginning. This is the, the Persian mission. Not only were they imprisoned by the Tsar, but they only ended up meeting with uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, the Pope, and the King of Spain, uh, even though they had six or seven, maybe eight different potentates that were on the list. But it's it's an interesting tidbit. And you can really see this as being, um, and we, we know actually that Sefer is aware of this. He says, I heard from a merchant who was in Muscovy that uh, these, this Persian embassy was supposed to come visit the King of Poland and that the Tsar wasn't allowing them to do so. And we can sort of extrapolate and see that this may be why the uh, Zygismund III organized this little unofficial visit to the court of the Shah to let him know that he's interested in friendship and that his uh, envoys had been detained by the Tsar. And we also know that, interesting, Muratovich uh, spoke Persian, which he initially conceals from the Shah, but then later on, you know, starts speaking Persian to him, and the Shah's very impressed. And he says, oh, I, I like this envoy more than any of these others. And he points to the, the papal envoy and the Venetian and the English <laughs> because uh, uh, speech in, in any foreign language uh, lacks taste, he says. So uh, it's, it's very interesting. <laughs> He's, obviously, Muratovich is blowing his own horn here. Yeah, you referred to uh, Sefer tuning his own horn and uh, 
this these types of things. Um, also, are there any things in the account that are in terms of the transmission across the to the manuscripts like suspicious or interesting that might say something else about what people are thinking in the past uh, and what the story was used to represent? Absolutely. Uh, at the end of the relation, we come across a passage which um, at first seems to have been possi- possibly added by the later editors of the original document. However, upon looking at it more closely... Um, I, I began to sort of question this a little bit. Let me explain to you what happened. So at the end of his last meeting with Shah Abbas in, in the relation, Muratovich says that the Shah took him into a private chamber to have a private conversation with him. And when they got into this private chamber, the Shah reveals to Muratovich that he is uh, been baptized a Christian and that he desires the baptism of his entire country, but he realizes that this is not possible at the moment because they're still, you know, very uh, attached to Islam. Imagine that. Um, so this, this is obviously some sort of fantasy. Uh, this, this, this meeting in behind closed doors almost certainly never happened. And of course, Shah Abbas, as far as we know, has never been proven to have been baptized by anybody. However, it speaks to I think, um, a larger notion that's, that's very prevalent, actually, in the greater Christian world uh, about the Shah, specifically Shah Abbas's relationship with Christianity and his own Christian subjects. We know that he was actually rather tolerant of the Christian populations living within his realm um, and, and allowed them um, relative, a, a relatively great degree of, of freedom not only in terms of practice, but also in, in some of the other ways they were treated by the state. And we know that this this fact was recognized by uh, the greater Christian world. Uh, for instance, the Pope was also rather certain, uh, because he had received similar reports from not only his envoys, but m- many other sources, uh, European Christian sources, that originated from individuals that were in the Shah's court, that spoke to um, the Shah's supposed regard for Christianity. And the Pope uh, may have chosen to interpret this as the Shah's desire to be baptized. So he ends up writing several letters um, to Shah Abbas the, the first personally, which we have copies of, saying, oh, I'm so, I'm so very happy that you've, uh, you've, you've shown such interest. Allow me to send priests. Uh, we can affect some sort of uh, baptism, and of course, your whole nation can follow you. This is a great thing. He also sends a letter to uh, one of Shah Abbas's co- consorts, who's the mother of his future uh, heir, who may have been Georgian by birth, may have been baptized as a child, but again, almost certainly was converted to Islam once she became a consort of the Shah along the same line, saying, uh, we know that you love Christ and uh, we would we sure would like it if you could get the Shah to, to do the same and maybe we can, you know, convert you all. And it's important to look at from the perspective of the Catholic Church's desire to um, spread its influence, but it also has a lot to do with the relationship that the Safavids have with many Christian rulers as they're trying to affect anti-Ottoman alliances. Uh, so there's a political function between this sort of rhetoric, and then there's the sort of religious piece. You know, if if, if the Shah is such a great guy, which everybody says, and if he um, is so nice to Christians, and if 
he's an enemy of the Turks. Why can't he just be a Christian like all of us and we can all get together and, and do this? So I think there, in regards to Sefer Muratovic and, and his relation, we don't really know exactly where this, this last part comes from, but um, it, it definitely bears similarity to some of the other things that are being written about the Shah. So it, it, it's probably just a fantasy, but he might have chosen to, or somebody chose to, to put this in there because they knew that other people were saying more or less the same thing, including the Pope. Actually, this story kind of reminds me of a figure that you've mentioned her twice now. Now, Zeman Davis has written about um, Leo Africanus or Hassan al-Wazan, the captive in the Vatican who, of course, the Vatican said that he did have an earnest conversion to Christianity, although we don't, there's a lot of ambiguity and ambivalence there. It's kind of a contemporaneous uh, figure in a certain like go between position. Absolutely. And actually I, I I would like to just add to that very briefly. Um we talked a little bit about the uh fifteen ninety nine, sixteen hundred uh Safavid embassy to Christian lands. Well this embassy became very famous throughout the Christian world, um not only because it was unusual to have an embassy of the Persian Shah in places like the Netherlands current day in the Netherlands, but also because there seems to have been a high rate of apostasy amongst the Persian members of this embassy, where we more or less know for a fact that it, that three of the high-ranking members of the Persian delegation converted to Catholicism and stayed in Spain. We know this because um, they left relations and they appear in talk, tax documents and things like this. One of them uh, ends up being uh, known as Don, Don Juan of Persia, and doesn't live much longer. He's eventually murdered, um, sort of in a street brawl. But he he lives out his life in Spain along with two others. And there's talk of at least three others that may have converted, including the cook that was sent along in uh, Rome and may or may not have stayed there, which adds to this whole notion of the Shah and Persians and Safavids and, and what you know what what is their relation with Christianity and can we can we affect some sort of conversion amongst the whole population? So it's a, it's a very deep story and it's 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 interesting but a lot more needs to be done to well, establish what it's really what's really going on here what it also makes you think about is travel in the early modern period some guy ends up on the other side of the planet and he just <laughs> decides to stay there and become part of that culture like today yeah. it's hard to fathom that you would go on like a diplomatic trip that you're supposed to return from and you end up staying somewhere forever. Absolutely. Obviously, it does happen to people. They go to study in Turkey, they end up getting married and spend their rest <laughs> of their life in Turkey. This does happen to people, but... Absolutely. And I think, like, maybe someone should do a study someday on, on survival rate of people that take part in these long-distance uh, missions because it, it can't be very good. So many of these people die. Not only the ambassadors, who are the only ones that may be recorded, die along the journey. Well, what happens to all the other people that go to, to help them out, like this Don Juan of Persia? Chances are good there's many people that end up staying. And the same can be said for those that go to uh, Iran, to uh, Safavid, Persia, or the Ottoman Empire. So many people end up just staying and maybe converting or just, you know, join the community. Yeah, there's a bit more incentive to just stay, uh, I guess, in this period. So what I wanted to ask you to finish up here, you mentioned this embassy that gets established. What, you know, what happens after um, Sefer Muratov's journey, both to Sefer himself and, you know, sort of within this uh, geopolitical milieu that he's operating in? He uh, returns rather quickly, uh, not staying too long in in Safavid lands, with the goods that he was sent to purchase, and everyone seems to be very happy with what he brought back, uh, as well as the news that he assumedly brought back um, from from the, the Shah. His message to Abbas I was 
well received because the Shah ends up sending uh, two embassies to uh, the King of Poland, which make it there successfully. Personally, what happens to Muratovich, he becomes a legal citizen of Warsaw and a member of, uh, more or less a member of Zygmunt III's court and becomes a, uh, a court merchant that does not have to pay any duties from items that he buys from the Ottomans, from the Tatars, or from the Persians, uh, as long as the court gets first pick of any things that he brings back. So his status is uh, greatly increased within the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and um, specifically with his relation to the king, who seems to be very happy with, with whatever it is he did. We're not exactly sure how much longer he lives, although he does show up with, within the next 10 years in the Armenian court records again in Lvov, um, and it, he seems to have been rather successful. In, in, the, in the greater scheme of things, the relationship between Safavid, Persia, and the uh, Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth doesn't change very much. They, they contact one another throughout the 17th century looking for possible advantages to be seen from anti-Ottoman alliances, but very often when um, the respective embassies show up, that leader is not possible to is not is not capable of affecting any kind of alliance at that time. Usually, because it's during a period of peace with the Ottomans that they don't really want to um, disrupt. Uh, nothing grand ever really occurs, although uh, trade certainly continues on all the way through the 18th century between these two these two states until uh, Poland disappears, and. Um, it is an important uh, relationship that is established right around the time of Muratovich's journey. Well, I think it's also an interesting travel account because this is kind of a period when all of the states you're describing are really both as states and uh, sort of generally on an economic uh, level really flourishing. I guess, you know, the Ottomans are only beginning to feel the um, sort of instabilities of the late 16th century that really become uh, rather severe and epidemic during the 17th century. And uh, in fact, uh, in Simeon of Poland, a a later Armenian merchant account uh, that passes through the Ottoman Empire, he gives a a bit uh, darker view of what's going on in the uh, Ottoman countryside. Absolutely. So it's nice to read these uh, accounts one after the other and sort of track what different people from their own subjectivity are observing in different periods. Absolutely. And I think if you put these two accounts uh, next to each other, Simeon the Pole and Sefer Muratovich, you begin to see that um, sort of the, the life and dealings of these individuals, uh, specifically as Armenians within um, the context that they lived, are not that unusual. In fact, um, they, you see a lot of resemblance between uh, characters like this. Well, Michael, thank you for coming on the podcast again. My pleasure, Chris. Uh, there's one more thing I wanted to ask you, actually. Um, this source you're reading is in what language? The source I'm reading is written in Polish because it comes from the 18th century uh, Mm -hmm. edition. Uh, Is it available in translation? It is not, but I'm hoping to publish uh, an English translation of the text in the near future. Well, uh, I'm sure our listeners are going to be looking forward to that uh, text, and we'll we'll get the link up there on the website as soon as it's out. Thank you. Um, For those of you who are interested in finding more about the topic, again, I'll refer you to the blog where you'll find places to leave comments and questions as well. Thank you for listening to the Ottoman History Podcast, and until next time, take care.